morning if you're joining us uh, online this morning. Good morning to those of you who are here in the room. Uh, as you can see from the screens behind me, we're uh, in a series right now. We're talking about this theme, Bumper Sticker Theology. Bumper Sticker Theology. And you might think, well, what's that about? What's, uh, why would we talk about that in a church? Well, you see, bumper stickers, uh, they tell us a lot about a person, okay? So if you pull up behind a car and they have a bumper sticker on the back of their car, you, you get a little insight into who they are, maybe insight into what sports team they cheer for, Uh, could be insight into who they voted for in the most recent election, insight into where they've been on vacation, if there's a sticker or some kind of decal from a place around the country or around the world, maybe even what's going on in their family, if they're a proud parent of dot, 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 or a kid who plays a sport of some sort. So, so bumper stickers give us a lot of insight into the, um, the individual driving the vehicle. Sometimes they can give us a little bit of an insight into the person in the car behind. This happened to me about 20 years ago. My wife and I, we lived up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. We were working with a church up there. And uh, I remember it just like it was yesterday. We were sat at the lights and there was a car in front of us and uh, it had a bumper sticker on the back. Uh, This isn't the exact sticker, but this is what it said. And I'm just sat there and Casey, my wife, sat next to me and she said, well, that doesn't make any sense. I said, what do you mean? She goes, that sticker, that doesn't make any sense. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, well, it's written wrong. I said, what do you mean it's written wrong? She goes, well, it should say, it says honk if you're polish. It should say honk if you polish. I'm like, ah, I don't think it's written wrong, Case. I think you may be reading it wrong. I think it actually says honk if you're Polish. Uh, In this particular area in Northwest Chicago, there was a lot of Polish people lived around there. Not so many house cleaners. So I'm thinking that probably this was to appeal to the Polish residents of the area and not the people that like to polish. Explain that to Casey. She's like, ah, a story I still enjoy telling. She gave me permission to tell that story this morning, but she did tell me that she is available in the lobby to tell you countless stories about me if you would like to hear them because they they definitely outnumber her stories at least 10 to 1. But, um, One of the insights we can get from bumper stickers is a person's faith in God because sometimes their bumper sticker might relate to uh, their own personal relationship with God. And while that's great, sometimes... Sometimes we can see these stickers and we can think, well, that that sounds great. I love the the concept of that sticker. But we have to ask ourselves the question, and that's what we're going to be doing in this series. What it says on that sticker, is it biblically sound or does it just sound biblical? Is it biblically sound or does it just sound biblical? Because there could be a bumper sticker or a fridge magnet or a a picture that you hang on your wall that that sounds really great. It kind of sounds biblical. But when you examine it in light of Scripture, maybe it's not completely lining up with what Scripture teaches. We talked about this last week. Uh, We talked about the bumper sticker, the phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle. And maybe you've seen that before on a sticker or on a plaque somewhere. God won't give you more than you can handle. And while that sounds nice, the reality is that sometimes in our lives, we'll go through situations that are very overwhelming, are actually more than we can handle. And the truth is that the sticker shouldn't say God won't give you more than you can handle. What it should say is that God will help you handle all that you've been given. 
That's a much greater truth. That means that when we go through those overwhelming times, we can know that God is with us. He's walking alongside us. He will help us get through those times. Sometimes it feels like we have been given more than we can handle, but we can take peace and comfort in the knowledge that God is right there with us, walking alongside, helping us in those times. There's another sticker we're gonna look at this morning and ask that same question. That sticker is, God is my co-pilot. And have you seen that one, been behind a car before and they've got that little sticker there on the back, it says, God is my co-pilot. If we're being picky this morning, really that shouldn't be on the back of a car, that should be on the back of a 747 because that's where you are more likely uh, to need a co-pilot. But but the phrase, the sentiment seems really cool, doesn't it? We we love that idea, don't we? At first it doesn't sound too bad. It's kind of like saying, well, I'm piloting this plane of my life and God's just sat right here next to me. He's given me instructions and guidance on where to go, what to do, how to live my life. We get this lovely little picture in our mind of you know, us sitting right there with our hands on the control. There's Jesus. He's got like a little co-pilot hat on and he's telling us what to check you know, and giving us. And we think, oh, that's great. But, but is this what Scripture teaches? Is this phrase biblically sound or does it just kind of sound biblical? Is God our co-pilot? Is that where he wants to be sat in our lives? Because you see, the danger with some of these phrases is when they don't sound completely wrong. Like sometimes you read something, you're like, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't think that would be right. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. What's dangerous is when it kind of sounds right, but it's not completely right. I'll give you an example. Maybe when you grew up, uh, your mom, she bought the generic soda. Anyone here have to grow up with a mom who bought the generic soda instead of the name brand soda? And what's worse is she tried to convince you that it was just as good as the, as the real soda. So you'd have bottles like this in your pantry. You know, you'd have a bottle of Mountain Shouting or Dr. Bob, and you're like, Mom, this doesn't taste like Dr. Pepper. Oh, it does. It's Dr. Bob. It's just like the real thing. And you're like, Mom, trust me, this is not like the real thing. And some of these phrases are kind of like that. They sound like the real thing, but maybe they're not quite the real thing. And I think that's the case with this week's bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that there are probably some of us here in the room this morning who would say, Dave, before you say that this phrase is wrong, you just realize that just the fact that Jesus is in the cockpit of my life is amazing. (laughs) If you could have seen me a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, I'm amazed that plane is still in the sky. I mean, seriously, it was a mess. My life was out of control. So, so just the fact that Jesus is, is in the cockpit is already a win. And I get that, and that's great. But this morning, we're talking about where he's sat in that cockpit. In that um, cockpit. Is it, what does it look like for him to be our co-pilot? And how does that line up with what Scripture teaches? So we're going to look at an encounter that took place between a young man and Jesus and see if this is really what Scripture teaches. Matthew, one of the four guys who wrote about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew tells us uh, about an interaction Jesus had one day with a young Jewish man. Matthew 19, 16 says that someone came to Jesus with this question, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So this guy's basically saying, Jesus, I need to know, 
Tell me the good things. Tell me the boxes I need to check. What do I need to do to get to heaven, to have eternal life? And Jesus gave an answer that basically any young Jewish man of that time would expect to hear. He said, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. So Jesus is reiterating here what what had been taught up to this point, that in order to to maintain a relationship with God, there was this list of rules, 10 of them that were given to Moses, these 10 commandments, and, and that was kind of the measuring mark. That's what we do back then in order to stay right with God as we try, we strive to follow these 10 big rules. But then this guy asks a rather odd question. He says, which ones? The man asked, you said follow the Ten Commandments, follow the commandments, which ones? And I think the reason the guy was asking this question was because from the time that Moses was given these Ten Commandments to the time that we're here now with Jesus, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the, the, the people of the law, they, they'd started to add to the rules. The list of rules was growing longer and longer and getting more and more complicated and, and more picky, you know, some of the rules that had to be followed. And it was getting harder and harder to follow all of these rules. And I think this young man was struggling under the weight and the burden of all these rules that he was expected to follow. So he said, Jesus, which ones? Probably hoping for an answer that would narrow the list down. And that's what he got. Because Jesus gave him a list. He said in verse 18 and 19, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these, in one way or another, showed up in that original list of 10 commandments. So I think the guy's feeling pretty good because he responds and says to Jesus in verse 20, I've obeyed all these commandments. He's like, yes, that's great news because I've done that. And you know what? At that point, he should have walked away. (laughs) He was on a win. He should have just taken that answer and said, all right, I'm good. Thank you. See you later. But he, he, he couldn't leave it there. And I think it's because maybe like you and me, he thought, is that it? Because I feel like there should be more. I feel like life is more than just checking some boxes and following some rules. There's got to be more to it than that. So he says in verse 20, I've obeyed all these commandments, but what else must I do? And Jesus uses that question to illustrate, to bring about a point that he talks about in other places in in the New Testament that was difficult for this young man to hear. He said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me, be my disciple. He'd said this to Matthew, to Peter, to to other disciples. He said, come follow me. He's saying it now to this young man. He's given the same invitation, come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. You see, I think, What happened here was this young man came to Jesus aware of all these crazy lists of rules that had to be followed. And I think in that moment, he was hoping that Jesus was gonna make it easier and just strip it down to a few rules that he had already followed. But he went away sad because Jesus threw in a new rule, a new challenge that was just too much 
for this young man. And here's why I think Jesus did that. I think Jesus took this opportunity to show that God isn't just interested in how we manage our outward obedience. Even though that's important, that's a huge part of of living a life as a follower of Jesus. It's not the only part. God's ultimately interested in our heart. He wants our whole heart. He wants all of us, not just our actions. I actually believe he wants to be more than just our co-pilot. He wants every part of us. Let me illustrate this way the, the point I'm trying to make. So, so imagine this, this steering wheel, okay? Imagine you're the, the pilot of an airplane and you get on the, or no, imagine you're the passenger of an airplane. You get on and, and you look into the cockpit and there's the pilot sat there holding this right here, okay? Actually, I, my advice to you, if, it's, if the pilot is holding that, get off that airplane. You really don't wanna be flying a plane that's controlled by this. But for the sake of this illustration, there's the pilot sat there. He's holding the, the steering wheel. The pilot, the pilot represents um, this young man. The story represents us. The co-pilot sat next to him and he's going through the checklist. So the pilot's got his hands on the wheel. Uh, The the co-pilot's saying, you can't kill anyone. Check, done that. Um, Don't commit adultery or steal. Check, check, done that. Uh, Honor your parents. Love your neighbor. Don't tell lies. Check, check, check. Pilot's feeling really good. Yeah, I've done all those things. And then the co-pilot surprises you and says, oh, one more thing. I'm gonna need that wheel. It's not just a checklist here. I wanna take control of that wheel. I wanna be the one holding that wheel. And that's what happened here in this story between Jesus and this young man. And that's why he struggled when Jesus said that. Because for him, this wheel that he was holding onto represented his wealth and his possessions. Everything that was dear to him, everything that was important to him, And he just wasn't ready to let go of that. He wasn't ready to say, yeah, God, you can have a say in that area of my life as well. He's like, hey, I don't mind following these lists, these commandments, but this, I'm gonna keep a hold of this. And it was hard because he had such a tight hold on it because he was so wealthy. Now, understand this, okay? He wasn't at fault for being wealthy. In fact, Jesus wasn't even saying it's wrong to be wealthy. That's not the point of what Jesus was saying here this morning to that young man or to us today. In fact, when he asked the young man to give up his wealth and follow him, that wasn't even a commandment. But the reason Jesus threw this challenge out to this young man is because he could see the white knuckles grabbing a hold of that wheel, saying, no, this is mine. This area of my life's mine. And I wonder this morning what that area would be in our lives. Would it be our money, our time, our possessions, our career, our reputation, that anger issue that we just don't want to resolve, that attitude that we can't seem to get rid of? Some of those things I just listed, they're not even wrong things, but they're just things that get in the way of us and God because we're just not willing to let go of the wheel. And Jesus is saying, I want more than just the co-pilot. I want to hold the wheel. 
And like this young man, I think um, some of us are confused because we're like, but Jesus, look at all the good things I have done. Look at the steps I've taken. Look at the rules I'm already following. Jesus, I'm, I'm showing up every Sunday. I'm, I'm, I'm here on a regular basis. I've allowed you to have a say in my life. Some of us might even say, Dave, I've, I've given Jesus the wheel. I followed that verse that's in the Bible where it says, Jesus, take the wheel. I remember hearing that verse and... Uh, you can find it, it's in the book of Carrie Underwoods. It's right there. <laughs> but you might be surprised this morning to hear that even country music doesn't always get it right when it comes to biblical principles. You're like, seriously? Because I remember that whole verse about the devil going down to Georgia and uh, playing the fiddle that time. You know, she was telling me, that's not right either. <laughs> See, here's the thing. I don't think it's the issue of whether Jesus can take the wheel or not. Sometimes it's the issue of where he is as he holds the wheel. Some of us have pictured him as our co-pilot saying, you sit right there, Jesus, and you know what? I'm gonna take my hands off and you can hold the wheel. If you need to steer left or right, I'm good with that. I'll sit right here. But here's the great news. At any point, I can just reach back out and grab it. See, I don't think God wants to be our co-pilot. I don't think even that Jesus take the wheels enough. I think if God is our co-pilot, we need to switch seats. If God is our co-pilot, then we ought to switch seats. That's the challenge, I think, that this verse brings when you line it up against Scripture. And that's what this young man wrestled with when he approached Jesus because he was quite happy to give Jesus a co-pilot role in his life and say, well, yeah, I've, I've followed that, I've done that, check, check, check. But then when Jesus kind of stepped into the pilot role and said, okay, then now I want you to do this, he's like, ah, that's a little bit too much. I, I don't know if I'm ready to, to let go completely of that right now. And that's difficult for us, but the reality is, as you look through the life of Jesus, he talks about this again and again. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 35. Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. There's this picture here, isn't there, of surrender, of, of giving up our lives for him. Allowing him to be more than just the co-pilot in our life who, who shows up on a Sunday morning for an hour or so and saying, Jesus, I, I love having you in the cockpit with you. I love that you're a part of my life, but I'm ready to take that next big step here and say, you, you will be more than just the co-pilot. I want you leading and guiding my life. And that idea of surrender, that can be really kind of frightening for some of us because it's, it's giving up control of the most important thing in our lives, our life. And that could be time, money, possessions, career, whatever it might be, but we're saying, God, I trust you so much that I'm even willing to give you the control of that area of my life. But I can promise you this. When you make that decision, when you give that to Jesus, he has got your best interests at heart. He can take you to the best life imaginable. He can, he can use you to do the most amazing things. 
I read about somebody this week and this just stood out as somebody who fully understood what it meant to, to give up their life, to allow God to sit in the pilot seat of their lives. It was a man by the name of Eric Liddell. You may have heard of him. If not, his life, was, um, his life story was kind of talked about in the movie Chariots of Fire. If you guys remember the movie Chariots of Fire, it's an older movie, but there's a scene when they're all running across the beach, slow, mu- slow motion, this music's playing, and I'm not gonna try and sing it, but there's a song that plays. And, uh, and it's about the life of this young man named Eric Liddell, who, uh, true story, was born and grew up in Scotland and uh, uh, was incredibly athletic and was a great runner and was going to the 1924 Paris Olympics to represent Great Britain. And he was the favorite to win the 100 meters. He was the one that everyone's saying, this guy's definitely gonna bring home the gold in the 100 meter final. When he gets to Paris, uh, he discovers that the heats to qualify for the 100 meter final are being run on a Sunday And this particular young man, Eric Liddell, was a very strong Christian young man, and and he just felt that um, his own belief meant that he he wasn't able to compete on a Sunday. As a Christian, he didn't think it was right to compete on a Sunday. Sunday was his Sabbath, it was his day of rest, it was his day to spend time with God, and he just didn't feel comfortable competing on a Sunday, so he withdrew from the 100-meter race. A friend of his, Harold Abrams, went ahead and went on to win the gold medal for Great Britain, But he'd gone all that way, so he thought, well, I'm here anyway. I'll sign up for another race that doesn't run on a Sunday. So he signed up for the 400 meters. Completely different race than the 100 meters. But he won his heat. He went to the final, and he won the final. The 400 meter final, hadn't ever run that race before. He wins the gold medal for Great Britain. As a follower of Jesus, he has this amazing platform to to stand on and share um, the part that Jesus played in his life and gave him the strength to run this race. I love this quote from him. He says, um, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. It's very different from any quote you'll ever hear from me. When I run, I feel no pleasure. So you'll never hear me say something like that. Um, But this guy was like, God made me fast. What a great testimony. Imagine the impact that would have on people hearing this guy's story. But Eric Liddell, with this promising career ahead of him, had made a decision early in his life to give up the steering wheel, to allow God a seat in the pilot seat and not the co-pilot seat. And God spoke to this young man and said, as great of an athlete as you are, I've got another plan for you is to become a missionary to China. He was born in China. His parents were missionaries to China. And as well as being known for saying, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure, he also said, because I believe God made me for China. Ultimately, he believed that God made him, and that's where he went. He became a missionary to China, did an amazing work over there. Still to this day, uh, there are people in China who look back and credit him as being somebody who brought the gospel, who brought the, the message of Jesus to China. He was there during the Second World War, and as the Japanese invaded China, he was um, captured, and he was put in a prisoner of war camp there in China. But even in the prisoner of war camp, God used him to minister to the other prisoners, He helped with the children, the other prisoners, talking to them about Jesus. Winston Churchill negotiated with the Japanese government a prisoner exchange to get Liddell back to Britain. 
They agreed upon the exchange, and when it came time to exchange prisoners, Liddell knew of a pregnant woman in the camp. He said, her needs greater than mine. Send her home instead of me. He died in that prisoner of war camp. But listen to this quote I came across from him this week. He said, every Christian should live a God-guided life. If you are not guided by God, you'll be guided by someone or something else. The Christian who hasn't the sense of guidance in his life is someone, or sorry, is missing something vital. When I read that quote, that doesn't sound to me like somebody who believes that God is their co-pilot. This sounds to me like someone who's saying, he is right here front and center. He is leading my life. And that's the challenge for us this morning. Are we ready to say, God, if if I'm sat here and you're in the co-pilot seat, then I'm in the wrong seat. And it's time for us to switch seats. Jesus, I want you to take the wheel, but I want you to take the wheel from the driver's seat. And we're gonna pray that prayer this morning. I'm gonna hold on to this steering wheel as I pray the prayer, and as I pray it, I'm just gonna release my hands in an act of saying, God, I want you to have control of this. And maybe as you're sat there, you can grip your own imaginary steering wheel and you can say, God, I wanna release that grip also. And here's the thing. In praying that prayer, nothing in your life may change. You may be right where you need to be right now. You are right in the center of God's plan for your life. But in releasing that grip, there could come a time in the next couple of days, weeks, months, where God's gonna bring this idea back into your mind. You're gonna be faced with a situation in life where, where you feel like you're, you have an opportunity to do something or, and everything in you wants to take control and say, well, I'm not, but there's a part of things, no, I, I need to trust God. I need to trust God in the pilot's seat of my life that he's got the best for me. And in that moment, that's when I hope and pray that we'll, we'll make that right decision. And unlike the young man, won't walk away sad because we know we didn't do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to live a wonderful life that we can look at the life of Jesus and, and aspire to live like him. But unlike that young man who Jesus came across, we don't have to work in our own strength to be good. We can come and we can have a relationship with Jesus who helps us live a life for you. But the challenge is that sometimes we can be almost right but still miss the real thing. We can have you in the co-pilot position in our life and, and you have influence in our life but you don't have full control of our lives. And that's difficult, Lord. That word control, the idea of us giving up control to anyone is difficult. But Lord, help us to remember we can trust you. So as we hold the steering wheels tightly in our life, whatever this steering wheel represents in our life, whatever it is that we want to keep a tight hold of because we're afraid that if we give it to you, Lord, you, you might send it in a direction or do something with it that we, we wouldn't do ourselves. Help us to trust, Lord, that you are a good, good God. I wonder if there were times when Liddell questions giving up that, that career, that athletic uh, direction his life was heading to be a missionary for you, Lord. But I think of the lives that were changed as a result of him doing that. Help us to trust you, to release our grip on the wheel, 
to allow you, Lord, to not just be the co-pilot in our lives, but to be the pilot at control, at the helm, steering, guiding us in the direction we should go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.